When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to start with a question for all of you guys out there. Where were you in June of 1967? Okay, so I was three. Stop doing the math. I'm 56. And I was toddling around my house in Los Angeles with my three older sisters, you know, kind of hunting around the backyard for avocados that had fallen off our tree. If you out there were alive and kicking back then, hopefully you were enjoying a relatively calm and peaceful life as well. But Half a world away, kids my age and yours were basically living on the brink as adults around them battled it out. Specifically, June 5, 1967 was the start of the six-day war between Israel and a coalition of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria with Iraq standing by to join in. As bombs flew, my guest today, nine years old then, evacuated her home mere seconds before a bomb landed on her house, destroying everything she and her family knew. How did Layla Pence go from young Egyptian girl to one of America's top wealth advisors? This is an extraordinary story and a perfect one for Everyone Talks to Liz. Layla Pence, president and co-founder of Pence Wealth Management, is my guest today. Uh, Layla, how's that for an intro? Wow. That's you sounds amazing. Is that me? <laughs> you know, maybe that's the attitude that got you where you are today. I, I want to start with a little history lesson, though, for our, our listeners. So after the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, uh, if you guys don't know, Egypt had blocked the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. And in 1956, Israel needed, you know, food and basics, et cetera, to get in. So they invaded the Sinai Peninsula with the primary objective of getting the Straits to reopen. Israel eventually withdrew from the Sinai on the guarantee that the Straits of Tehran would open and remain open. But in May of 67, President Nasser of Egypt broke that deal and closed off the Straits of Turin to Israeli vessels and then mobilized its Egyptian forces along the border. June 5th. Israel launched what it claimed were a series of preemptive airstrikes against Egyptian airfields and enter the family of Layla Pence. First of all, what was your childhood last name? Ibrahim. Ibrahim. I-B-R-A-H-I-M. Okay. Layla Ibrahim. What do you remember of that moment? So so actually, we lived an amazing life back then. Mm. We, I had a villa. And it was a seven-bedroom villa. I had guava trees and mango trees. And we had a car and a chauffeur. And it was me and my mother and my three sisters. And I was actually nine years old. Uh, and, and I remember very well, we were having breakfast on the veranda in this amazing villa that day when all of a sudden we hear the siren that was so scary, you know, you know, coming on and on and on. And and, and it was just, at a nine-year-old, I was just so frightened. And um, 
and we didn't really know what was going on. And and then of course my dad said, you know, this is this is a siren because of bombing and and um and it was it was just really really scary. And all of a sudden, within a few days, we lived right across the street from a big park, and we just started seeing soldiers come across, and they just filled that whole park. And then we started seeing more and more, um, you know, sirens and so forth. So my dad said we can't stay in this house, so we moved inland um, in Suez. Uh, because this was actually in in a city called Fort Afik, which was just one block away from this West Canal. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, so we moved inland, and then things died down for a while. And then because we had left in such a hurry, we we wanted to come back and get some of our clothes and everything. So we all got in the car, we went back to the house, and uh, you know we're packing stuff and all that. Right when when that was happening, we, the siren comes out. You know, woo, woo. And again, you know, my dad started yelling and yelling. He says, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, uh, you know, I was in my room right there, you know, packing stuff. And, of course, you know, we don't want to leave. You know, we're packing stuff. But we get into the car. And just when we're turning the corner from that street, we hear boom. And mm. that bomb hit the room, my room, when I was just in a few minutes before. Would would you say you would have been killed had you not moved? Abs- absolutely. It was a few minutes, a few minutes worth. And, um, and you know, that was so tragic to see our, ho- our house, basically my childhood disappear in my rear view mirror. I mean, it was it was really dramatic. And, uh, and then we moved inland at the... You know, my dad was a banker, and the bank gave him an apartment to for us to stay in inland. And, and then I remember very well all the times when all the bomb you and we would go down to the shelters, and you hear the bombs. And you, and my dad actually taped, you know, people in the in the bombing because you hear everyone praying to God and praying to God, and you hear the bombs in the background. You hear the bombs, and because Suez had oil. Uh, you know, I remember getting out, you know, when things would calm down and and the, the city was just all, it seemed like it was all on fire because they, oh. you know, Israel wanted to bomb the oil tanks because, uh, and, and it's, I, you know, I don't know, until the day I die, I, rem- I have these visions in my mind that will never go away. That's what makes your story even even more incredible and and certainly something that I hope all of our listeners attach themselves to because from that point, your family decided, let's not wait around in the Middle East. What triggered your father to make the decision to emigrate to America? So what happened is, um, you know, um, having, he had to stay there in Suez for a while. So my whole, all my sister and I, we, we, we had to spread around the country uh, because I was in a French school. So the only place I had a French school was with my grandmother. And so they sent me all alone to go live with my grandmother. And, and I had an older sister that got married and my other sister kind of lived there. And we all had to spread around the country. Mm. And, and, you know, at that time, there was no telephones. There was no, you know computers. So I was really, you know, isolated living with my older grandmother, you know, our, you know, miles and miles away from my family. And then after a while, my dad, 
you know, the, the Suez got so bad that he had to move to Cairo. And we, we moved to Cairo and we lived in a very small, uh, you know, apartment because he didn't want to drive and he wanted to live next to where he worked. And it was just, we went from this amazing villa and everything to, to that place. And my dad worked in, you know, um, in something called letters of credit for the banks. And he, he had a friend in New York that worked for chemical bank. And I don't know if you I remember, remember it. Absolutely. <laughs> so he told him, you know, listen, you know, with your background in, in the banking industry and so forth, you can get a job easily in New York. So my dad was, you know, really decided then to immigrate. Uh, we decided to immigration and um, my my sisters all wanted, you know, they were in college and everything. So they stayed behind and one of two of them got married. So it was, it was just me, my mother and my dad that were going to immigrate. And everything was set and, you know, coming to Staten Island, New York. And um, and a month before we were all supposed to leave, my my dad fell very, very bad fall and broke his legs in many, many pieces. Oh. And so here we are. Um, you know, if we if my mom and I don't leave, we would lose our our visa and our immigration paper. So me and her at that time, I was 12 years old. Neither of us spoke any English. I none. Spoke only fr- none. I spoke French. I went to French school. I spoke French. My mom didn't even speak French. She only spoke Arabic. <laughs> and very, very few broken words of English. And I had a few broken words of English, but very, very broken. And here we are coming to Staten Island, New York. We have no family whatsoever. Just that one friend of my dad, very distant friend. And and so, you know, we, we wind up staying with them for like a couple of months and then we had to move out and we had to go and rent an apartment with a Puerto Rican family and we just had to rent a room in an apartment with a Puerto Rican family. Yeah, couldn't even be a and French family with whom you could communicate. No, exactly. <laughs> and we could hardly communicate. They spoke Spanish. <laughs> we spoke Arabic and very little <laughs> English. We had this little uh, room. Well, you know, welcome to New York. The, exactly. the ultimate melting pot. Um, so you're living in this room with this Puerto Rican family, and you realize you've got to get a job, even as such a young child. How did that job happen? So um, I started going to um, – I, I was pretty young getting into high school. I finished you know, high school at 16, so I was 13 then at that time, and then I – so I went to – um, uh, Curtis High School in New York, and I met this Egyptian friend, and um, and she was instrumental in getting me a job on the Staten Island ferry, and because living in Staten Island, everybody took the ferry to, that works in downtown New York, yes. and um, so I would finish school and I would run down the hill and go to work on the Staten Island Ferry, selling hot dogs and knishes. I didn't know what a knish was. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah, it was selling hot dogs, knishes, and pretzels, and people would get out of work, and they would run to the snack bar, and, you know, and I, I learned enough, you know, English, and, and you know, when you have to, and there's no such thing as English second language, you know, especially yeah. for Arab, back then. Know, for Egyptians speaking. Yeah, back then. So I just had to learn in a job. And actually, both my mother and I worked. They, they, she got a job for both of us because we needed, you know, we needed to basically support ourselves because 
was very hard to bring in money and and um, at that time. And so we had to both work. What and job did she get? The same thing. She worked in the Seth Island Ferry with me. So we both got the same job. Um, this friend of ours and her mother, she was Egyptian, she got us this job. And uh, we both had to work. She had never worked in her entire life. And I certainly had never did and thought, you know, at that age would ever work. And um, and, the, and the worst part about all that, you know, coming from Egypt is the weather. The weather, I mean, I had to take two buses to go to school. And I'm and I, I you know I remember not feeling my my toes and my ears and mm. the cold weather waiting for the bus and I remember my mom crying every night herself to sleep because oh. you know coming into this and just having to deal having know, to face it having to face it. and you you know you always think when you come from a different country that America is the streets are paved with gold right and you get you know yes yeah, you got to dig for it. Right, exactly. It's not just sitting there. It's not just sitting there. Yeah, at the intersection of 48th and and Lex, you know, it's not there. You have to dig and sweat and get it out, which is what you both did. When did you start to feel comfortable with the language and and beyond the, you know, how many knishes do you want and (laughs) meat-filled or vegetable, right? I started, you know, we we both like um, went to – I went to school and also her, my mom and I went to, you know, uh, days we were not working. We we went studied another school, you know, some of the uh, schools gave English and we just had to, we just had to learn. Mm-hmm. You just, it took, it took me about a good, my mom took a lot longer. I mean, she, unfortunately she just passed away in December here. Sympathy. She still, Sorry. She still had, um. You know, her English was always broken because when you come older, you just never get, you know, into speaking as good English. And so it took me about oh, maybe a year to uh, – that is one thing. Knowing French helped a little bit. Um, and I guess when you just put into position where you have to learn, you learn. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was bright enough to pick it up. And so, um, so I, I just learned in about a year or so. Uh, the language and um, started communicating more, but it was still, I mean, difficult. Uh, you know, it's very difficult, you know. And then you're dealing with knowing. the culture, and as you said, the weather. <laughs> Having come yeah. from the West Coast when I first moved to Columbus, Ohio, I didn't know what an ice storm was. An ice storm where the trees look like they're dipped in glass and you can't even get into your car because the key locks are frozen. So that, on top of everything else, you're dealing with learning all of the vagaries of a brand new culture and language. And uh, I'm interested to know when your childhood memories started to turn and you started to feel more American than Egyptian. Really, as I started, um, you know, working and 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 realizing oh, wow i can actually you know earn money if i work which is something i wouldn't have ever the chance and and as i started making a little bit of friends and um and was able to see that you know if i worked hard i can actually have something and and i remember um eventually buying my first car which was a mustang and i had a hundred dollar car payments at age 16 and wow you know i thought wow it was i was telling my daughter the other day that it was it was a red car and and uh, and it was arrest me red 
Girl, <laughs> you are cray. You had a red Mustang at age 16. OMG, that is incredible. And you were yeah. making your own payments? Yes. $100 a month payment. And I, I worked hard because, you know, it, it, this is when things started really, and I've always worked. I worked through high school. I worked through, then, you know, I did that here when I moved to, um, um, you know, finally moved to California and so forth. Then I was able to, uh, you know, you have to have a car here. You yeah. can't get around without a car. So yeah. you had to, you had to get a car and, and, um, and um, by that time, my, my dad had moved here, and as soon as he moved to New York, he really hated the cold weather. And so, <laughs> and, and, uh, so I, I, you know, it was perfect because I wanted to come to UCLA, so we moved the whole family here to, to go to UCLA and, and, and get out of the cold weather. Okay. And, uh, so let's and get then, to the UCLA part. Yeah. You study economics. At UCLA, right. and that's when you get bitten by the high finance bug. What was it that fascinated you so much about finance to study that and economics? Well, my dad was a banker, mm-hmm. and so I, I was. Yeah, always, my dad was a urologist. I don't want to go do into that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, in Egypt, you know, you, you grow up. You, you know, all your families ever want you to be is is a doctor, an engineer, or a pharmacist. You know, <laughs> I realized, I, you know, really young on when, you know, I wanted to paint the side of blood. That is, that was never going to be something I wanted to do. Right. And so uh, I, I, you know, I, I was, I was very good in math and figures and, and, uh, you know, really early on having to work and work, deal with my finances and so forth. And, and, um, so, you know, my first year, I was just waitressing. I, I waitressed and, and put myself to school. Where? Here. In, in, I know. Uh, Do you remember the restaurant? Oh, it was it was actually, it was just so funny because I thought coming from New York that because I worked in the South Island Ferry, so that I was, I knew how to waitress. So I went to this coffee shop and I told them I had experience. And I, <laughs> this is so funny. I remember, <laughs> you know. For breakfast, people asking me to have eggs over easy. I had no idea what the heck that was. I didn't know what over easy was or over medium or or, or, or right toast. Right. You only spoke Kanish. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was, I mean, it was, uh, you know, thank God they would. This, this and I can't remember the name, but it was in, it was on Pico Boulevard. So I remember in, in, in L.A. And um, and then I moved from there to other places, mm-hmm. but but I, I remember that very first experience. Just all I had to I had to just write down what they said because I had no idea what I was writing down. <laughs> I was like I had no idea because all I ever ate in back home is scrambled eggs. But don't you almost feel like the fact that you dove in and started doing jobs about which you knew very little, you just bit into it and said. I'm going to learn how to do this on the fly. And that probably helped you with your future career, did it not? It did. It did because in the last year of school, when, when this friend of mine approached me about getting into, you know, about really initially it was about selling tax shelter annuities to teachers. And and he told me about, you know, um, doing doing that. And, um, and I, you know, okay, they can get 10% and they can save you know, their money in taxes. And then right at the same time, you know, he, he got me, you know, interested in, 
in selling mutual funds and, and doing that got me licensed and all that. And that's when I remember I had to, at that point in time, you know, I was very young. I had to go see clients, right? So I went to see this, my first client and to her house, which was in Norco. I drove all the way to Norco and so forth. And, um, you know, I talked to her and she was an, uh, an older lady and she told me, you know what? I'm going to give you $20,000. I don't want to be a bag lady. I want you to invest up $20,000. Whoa. Me. At that time, that's a lot of money. Today, that's a lot of money. Back then, it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I remember not sleeping all night. I was so excited. I couldn't <laughs> believe anybody would trust me with $20,000 of their hard-earned money. I, I, You know, I even get goosebumps right now. I was just thinking about it because it was that, you know, it, and it just gave me a lot of confidence is that, wow, if someone would do that and I just – you know, and I think I've always been very truthful and very caring and very passionate. And whenever, you know, I, I, I really learned, I wanted to make sure I knew everything about it. And I told them, you know, uh, you know, it's a bomb fund and it would pay interest. I mean, I learned all these things and, um, and I was able to relay that. And, but that was just the start. I mean, to think about how much I manage now and and back then, you know. That you, you always need a start. You always oh, need someone absolutely. to believe in you, and and um, I think you know good education, hard work. But it takes hard work. I mean, at that time, I had to go see clients. Yes, I had to wherever they want. I had to work on the weekends when people when people were home to see me. You know, in evenings, I worked when everybody else was off. And at the time, there weren't as many women in the financial industry. As, as there are today, certainly, you know, yeah. t- tell me, tell me what kind of barriers you had to scale when you were first working in finance. Did anything happen? I mean, people always say, oh, you, wow, you work in business news. It's not a friendly place for women. Well, compared to what it was decades ago, it's very friendly. But I've also never looked at gender and thought, well, I'm a woman. I have to do. I just dive right in, which That's sounds like did. you did the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I had an accent. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, a, a, a woman, but I just dove right in. I mean, I just, I, I couldn't sit there and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm a foreigner. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a woman. I just. I, but I clients might is my point. How did yes. you overcome that? I just, you know, I really, I did have a good teacher, and he told me every no got you closer to a yes. And and that you have to have so many no's to get to a yes. So mm. and and you know and and it was it was difficult because it's very easy to get down and, and when people tell you no, it's you take it personally, right? And 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 but you really, you know. And I just felt that if I studied harder than everybody else, and you know, it's kind of like when I think of of athletes, the way athletes now is they train harder than anybody else. Even if they're not as talented or as smart, if they train harder, there's much higher chance of success. And I think that's, I did that instinctively, maybe just because, you know, I really felt that, you know, the other thing I want to tell you is that I'm the youngest of four daughters, you know. Me too. Having... Yeah, but in Egypt, to only have girls. Four, and then and then my little brother, we have Brooke. We call him Jesus because he's the, the Messiah, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I never had that. I was their last hope at the Messiah. 
my 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 parents had my three sisters in a row, and they waited ten years. They weren't going to have any more girls mm-hmm. or any more kids. And then my you know my grandmother kept telling my mother, "Hey, you have to have a boy to carry on the name of the family," you know, and and all those things. And so they tried one more, and I came. So I was the last hope. <laughs> I was the last hope at a boy, so I've always felt like I had to prove myself more, because I, I you know, I didn't, I felt, I didn't want, you know, I guess I didn't want them to be disappointed that they had so many girls. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listen Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Clearly, it sounds like your work history started to really catch up and pay serious dividends. You became very successful, and you met your husband, your future husband, Dryden Pence. How did you meet him, and what was it about him? Because you later, in 1989, together formed the financial advice business, Pence Wealth Management. That is correct. So we actually were a blind date, believe it or not. (laughs) And and, uh, he... um, uh, you know, was in a similar business uh, uh, that he had his own company, and um, we, you know, it was really kind of an interesting story. But um, I, I actually, I'm always very competitive, so I loved sports, and um, I married the only guy in the world that doesn't like sports. <laughs> <laughs> but our first date was was a hockey game, and I asked him if he likes hockey, and he said, "Oh yeah." And everything, you know, so I, we went to the hockey game, uh, you know, we met in a restaurant, we went to the hockey game at halftime, you know, at, at, at once we sat, we, we uh, sat there, he asked me, when is halftime? <laughs> no halftime in hockey. <laughs> There's no halftime in hockey. And, I, and, uh, and then he had to confess to me that we did, he really wanted, you know, that I sounded so good and, and so forth from his friend that he wanted to meet with me that, yes, he can learn to love hockey and he can learn to love sports, which he has done, but he's still never as passionate about me <laughs> and and that he had never been to a hockey game. And so, but he was a very good dancer. So anyway, we he took me dancing that night and, and made it well. And uh, here we are. Uh, he's really Aww. been instrumental in in uh, helping me to grow the business and and b- both of us together. And this is, I think, having a family business and and having two people. And it's not easy at times, as you might imagine. But uh, but we both have a servant's heart. We both have uh, the you know, the, and we. That's one thing we surround ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always felt that. I'm not good at everything, and, and the key to really success is to surround yourself with people that are better than you, and 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 are and to do things that you don't know how to do. Isn't that and the think, truth? Yeah. And 
and early on this is what we have and we have you know our team i always tell people that my great my greatest assets is my team and, and my firm is the people that that do this that i get a lot of the accolades and and so forth but i i have nothing without them so leila you formed this business how many clients do you have today? How much in assets do you have under management? Because my next question after that is very specific about starting business. So I have right now, of course, it changes with the markets. You know? <laughs> I'd say, uh, uh, you know, before this market, uh, you know, uh, drop, we had about $1.7 billion uh, in assets. And we have about, so I have other advisors and so forth. We have about um, 1100 clients mm-hmm. or so and so um, and I and we've never bought another firm it's all been organic growth wonderful so here's the next question today immigrants launch I believe more than a quarter of US businesses but as you know the immigration policy has made it more difficult for people to come from other countries and do what many immigrants have done for centuries and that is scrappy business, let's get it done, that same attitude that you had. Uh, Today, what would you say immigrant business owners need to be successful? Well, they need need to basically do kind of what I did is really – and that's the thing about immigrants. They're really very scrappy and, you know, and like they work hard. They work hard because they realize there's no limit. There's the opportunity here. The American dream is still here. I'm living it, and it's still here. And and they and they depend on family. Like I couldn't do this also without my family. I have a 17 year old. If I didn't have my family supporting me and helping me with my daughter, I couldn't have a balance. I couldn't have, you know, the work and and still have a family and still that because you need people around you. And this is why a lot of the Im- immigrant immigrants like to bring family because a lot of them as a family no one could do anything by by themselves and so if they they really they they have to find a thing that they are good at and focus on whatever they they want to start and there's so many opportunities even today there's there's so much and and i am hoping you know some of these immigration things you know come back because we we do have a shortage of of employees indeed, right now indeed and oh. so and and you know they do immigrants will come in i mean i remember you know i brought in a lot more of my family here now and we have cousins and we have my sisters are two of my sisters are here and and you know and and they've been able to you know see what i've done and and build their own businesses and one of them you know um was a doctor and he washed dishes all the time until he was able to get his studies and actually become a doctor. And, and that this is what it takes. Yes, and I, I think know, it, that many uh, people who have been lucky enough to be born in America and certainly generations out from their immigrant parents tend not to understand that. And that lies on our shoulders. For, for me as a parent, I have to do what my dad was able to do for me. My dad's father was a Russian Jewish immigrant. My mother, Romanian immigrant. 
they were both born in Canada. Then they came to America. And so now you're a couple of generations out. And how when you're raising kids in a beautiful atmosphere, look at you. You and Dryden are now multimillionaires, self-made. So trying to teach the next generation that work ethic, what's the trick to that? Well, you know, thank God for Uber, right? People <laughs> come in here and they can be Uber drivers and they can be Lyft drivers. Right. And, they, you know, and I have my daughter who's, who is, you know, 17 right now and we're having her work here in the summer and she works like everybody else in the office Good. and she answers the phones and 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 she has her own account and and you know it's very important my you know dryden always says tells a story about when his father was growing up his grandfather made him clean the the bathrooms of the segregated um, stations so that he would never have a, a blue-collar job. And then when he was growing up, his father made him clean the, the bilges in the in the boats mm-hmm. so that he would know what hard work is so that he can get an education. And so we've been trying to find a, a job that's so difficult for my daughter to do. <laughs> <laughs> but she's pretty motivated already. She's well, that's highly great. motivated. Well, and she's we got you you as a guide, work. you as a touchstone. Before we let you go okay. and, and we wrap this in amazing and aspirational story, I do have to ask you about the times that we're dealing with right now. We've got the coronavirus scare. The markets are moving on any given day, either up or down 3% plus. It has been really frightening for investors and people who just have simple 401ks. What kind of advice are you giving your clients that you can give free to our listeners right now? I I tell you, they really, you know, a year from now, okay, if you can, if you can just put the blinders on and think a year from now, things will be back close to normal. Mm -hmm. If you're investing just for one year, you shouldn't be in the market in the first place. If you, this is you. You invest in the markets and and in businesses, and you look at the kind of dividend yields that some of these companies are paying to, today. It is you really have to think. This is you need to dollar cost average in, and that's what we're doing. We're buying a little bit at a time because we don't know is this a, a U shape, a W shape, but you have to look at values and this is where you can look at companies and look, oh my gosh, these companies are not really going to be affected with the coronavirus as much and they're selling at a discount because when people are selling, they don't say sell this one, keep this one or sell this one. They just say, get me out, get me out, get me out and they sell the good with the bad. And there's so much opportunity right now. And if you can just, things like that happen, you know, wealth actually occurs and the most success happens when there's so much dislocation. There's so much fear out there. You can't go in all at once. But if you can go in, if, if you look at your portfolio and you used to have so much in bonds, you take a little bit of those bonds and you put them into the equities and you buy them at a time. You know, you buy every time the market's down a little bit, you buy yes. a little bit more. And you have to have that strong – so like this is how people succeed, how you get to the American dream. And how do you really, you know, um, get to your retirement and so forth is you take advantage of these things. When things go on sale, nobody wants them in right. the market. And this, the, these opportunities – don't come often and it's hard to see something that where people are very ill and dying as opportunities, certainly on the money side. 
But you're saying that people have to separate the fear because no one should ever move their money around when they're fearful. That's not going to work. You've got to make Absolutely. very rational decisions. And right. you're saying sell some of your winners and use that cash to then buy some great companies going through tough times. Exactly. And buy a little bit at a time. Buy some. You know, every time the market goes down, you buy some. You dollar cost average in. Okay, so you don't okay. take all your money, buy them now because then, you know, because we don't know. But you buy a lot and you buy a company, you know, you look at the companies and you go, hey, you know, they're yielding so much. It gives you a little bit of staying yes. power. Or some of the other companies that really been beat up. And if you just could, could control your emotions, because this is the problem, is it's, yeah. so, it's investing so emotional. If you could just call your advisor I've actually had clients the last week probably gave me more money than they've given me all year because we've we've been talking about this and I waiting and I you've been waiting for this been moment. waiting for this and I, I, I come and and clients because it's it just some a year from now do you think we're going to be dealing with what we're dealing with now no you know you're going to have a vaccine so are you investing for one year and they go no I, we're not then hey you know, you're not going to be getting much in the banks with interest rates are slow. Yes. This is the time. This is if you just can get yourself in there and to really pick up some things and then the market goes down okay. somewhere. Just dollar cost average in. And, Layla, and I can tell you, you're going to be a much happier year from now. You go, wow, was that, did I do the right thing? And, you know, but you have to live with and just, if it goes down, that's fine. That's a buying opportunity. Layla. What a story. As we finish up, I have one final question. What do you say to people out there thinking that they have a dream and they're trying to reach it, but it feels so difficult to them right now? You know, if you really have a dream, you can accomplish your dream. It takes hard work, hard work, hard work, hard work. You can't give up on your dreams. Yeah, I've had I had many times where you know I would drive hours to see a client and they wouldn't be there. They, you know, and I'd have to drive back in the rain and everything like that. But this is what it takes. And you know, the thing is, the opportunity is there if you have a product or if you work for a company or if you are somewhere that is something that you believe in. You just keep at it. You just keep at it, Amen. and eventually it will come. And the other thing, too, is try and find a role model. Try and find someone that can can help you along to whatever your dream is. Try and find someone who's really good at what you want to be at. And people, if they're asked, they give advice. People do. I get asked for advice all the time, and I take the time because we have to help the next generation. And there's many people like me out there that will do that. Just go and reach out to someone. And if they say no reached out to someone else we have social media now we have linkedin we have so many people out there that are willing to help because one thing i found are people are generous with their time and they're generous here with their money and their time well let's but hope. you have to ask people have to get asked to actually give the advice and don't ever give up on your dream that's what i can tell you Layla pence of pence wealth management pence wealth advisors i have to tell you I love your story. I'm so glad we got to tell it here on Everyone Talks to Liz. Congratulations to you and Dryden for living a good life, not just a successful life, but a good life. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. And and I'm humbled by it. I can't thank you enough. You're welcome. I'm thanking you and, and everyone out there. What did I tell you? This is an amazing story that I hope you are able to glean some messages from about aiming for your dreams and just barreling through those stumbling blocks and those stepping stones. Just go for it. That's what Layla did, and that's what you absolutely should try and do every day of your life because we've got one shot, right? So, so appreciative that you all listen and that you're listening. Spread the word about Everyone Talks to Liz. We only tell great American dream stories here of going through tough times and managing and finding success depending on whatever realm that is. So we hope you'll tune in again next week. And until then, I'll see you Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Claim and Countdown. It has been a wild market week, and it doesn't look like any of that roller coaster movement is going to be dying down soon. So I'll see you 3 p.m. Eastern. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.